This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Welcome to the Becoming Educated podcast. I am Darren Leslie, and today I am joined by Ian White. Ian White was a head teacher for over 25 years in Glasgow, first at Govan High, where he had 100% positive destinations for his leavers, despite some dire socio-economic backgrounds, and 60% of his school role entitled to free school meals. Secondly, he was head teacher at Newlands Junior College, where Ian provided alternative provision for young people who were at risk in S3 and S4 of leaving education with nothing to show for it. Ian is a fine example of the empowerment agenda in action and now works as a consultant for education. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. So just to kick us off, Ian, could you share with the listeners a little bit about you, who you are and your career today? Yeah, um, I suppose a pretty ordinary kind of person, uh, really. I was born and brought up in Greenock in a council house. My father had been uh, a joinery trade before World War Two, and then he was away for uh, six years in the Royal Navy. And after the war, he did a bit of joining and then went on to train as a technical teacher. So in that sense, teaching was uh, in my family from uh, him. I went to school uh, locally. As in these days, I passed my quality and I went to uh, Greenock High School and did okay there and uh, thereafter went to the University of Glasgow and uh, did a degree in uh, biology and botany. By that time, I really fully had it in my mind that I wanted to become uh, a teacher. And my life experiences had been broadened during that time by different uh, summer jobs. The, the shipyards employed in this area about 10,000 people at that time. And I used to work in there for months and end uh, during the summer. And, you know, that was, uh, that was a great experience from the on uh, the one extreme, the, the, the Billy Connolly uh, sense of humour that you came across in the yards to to the other extreme, the, you know, the things that I learned and uh, the real great admiration I had for these uh, people who were, I mean, they were serious craftsmen. What, what these fellas could do with their brains and their hands was absolutely unbelievable. And I remember talking to an old fellow one day who was working on this uh, intricate, geometrical uh, uh, development of a, a length of trunk that he was making for air conditioning and I said oh, geez there's, there's some maths in that well and he said oh don't be that son it's only common sense you know and they were in many ways they were quite uh, self uh, deprecating but smart people and I learned uh, I learned a lot from uh, a lot from then I did some work in the building trade as well as a labourer with Sir Robert McAlpine and just learning uh, all the time behind a bar that was a laugh too you know just as uh, student teachers do and we, we pick up lots of valuable life skills in that kind of uh, informal uh, way so after uh, the university I went to Jordan Hill as many of us did at the time and at the same time I did a diploma in education, which you could do concurrently at the University of Glasgow. When I came out, jobs were in relatively short supply, but I was lucky enough to get one, and it was in my hometown in uh, Greenock. So I started off as the only biology teacher in 
a school that had been a, a junior secondary for boys and was now developing into a comprehensive. So um, it was a very uh, interesting place to work. Uh, one of the funny things was that the, the older lads in the school had got caught in the reason of the school leaving age and they had thought they would have been out of there a year before they actually were. So uh, to say that they weren't exactly happy at their schooling was uh, an understatement. So um, I learned a lot in, in these <laughs> days uh, uh, too. When I hear uh, some folk nowadays moaning about uh, classroom management and I think back to these days when literally with some classes I couldn't turn my back on them at any time. Uh, or else you would have anything for a light bulb to a stool uh, getting uh, getting flung at you, you know. So, uh, so these were uh, they were great days though, and it was a good uh, place uh, to start. I did ten years in that school, uh, five as a, just a classroom teacher, and then as biology grew in the school, I became uh, the principal uh, teacher. After that, I had five years in in Rossi Academy on the Isle of Butte as assistant rector, following up in that two years back in Inverclyde and in, uh, Port Glasgow High School in the Port High, uh, two years in there, which again was uh, terrific because I knew the community and lots of people uh, uh, knew me. And finally, I became the, at least as far as the uh, local authority systems concerned, I became the Hede at uh, uh, Govan High School. And that in itself was a bit of a laugh because I had uh, been sitting after a, after a tea, uh, having a wee cuppa, and in these days the Herald had all the school adverts in it, and my wife, Gail, said to me, well, there's a job that would do you. She said, Govan High is nice and handy uh, just up the road. So I'd only been, I'd been less than two years as a deputy head, so I thought, oh, I'll apply for it anyway. And here did I know, much to my surprise, eh, get the job. So so that was it, and off I went to Govan, where I was for exactly 20 years and one week eh, as eh, eh, the Hedy. So a pretty conventional eh, career, just eh, working my way um, through the ranks, as it were, and... Eh, ultimately uh, attain my final goal. As regards that final goal, it was it was funny when uh, when I got that job because as people locally uh, got to hear about it, they were obviously congratulating me and uh, things like that. But a girl that I'd been in school with, uh, Elspeth, uh, had been at University of Glasgow with me and we had travelled up quite often together and in the nice way that it saved money we'd walk out from the central station to the university and we'd go through uh, Kelvin Grove Park and she said to me, she became a, a librarian but she said to me I, I see uh, you're going to be a head teacher, I said uh, that's right, she said ah, but you were always going to be a head teacher and I said how do you work that out and she told me something, a wee story that I'd forgotten about, she said I remember that day we were walking through the park and we were talking about what we are going to do after we graduated and you said I'm uh, going to Jordan Hill and she said I said to you um, you're going to be a teacher then and you said no Elspeth I plan to be a head teacher so there you are even back then I was really conceited and uh, uh, objectionable and uh, arrogant and all of that sort of so all these adjectives that have been uh, levelled at me over the, the years even back then um, I was saying that but looking back on it I think it was uh, 
the fact that I wanted to have a real, I wanted to have a real impact, and and you that to have a real impact on the system, as opposed to individual young people, then uh, the place to do that would be uh, as a head. So, so there you are. That's uh, that's Ian in a nutshell, I suppose. Definitely a lot, a lot, a lot of experience in there, and we're going to cover a lot of of your time as a head teacher and talk about about your thoughts on leadership. But before we before we get there, you spoke about your early days in the classroom. Could before we get into you as a head teacher, could you share with us what you were like as a classroom teacher and a principal teacher before you started leading on on whole school developments? Uh, excellent, excellent. I was a great teacher and. Uh, even as a head, for a while I did uh, a bit of teaching because I really enjoyed it. But I stopped it when I when I felt it had become a bit self-indulgent in that I could never guarantee that I would be with the class as often as I should be. And uh, I actually um, I actually stopped teaching later on in my time as a, a head teacher. But uh, but no, I uh, I loved it and. Uh, as I say, I was good at it. I know that because young people told me I was good at it. They wanted to be in, in uh, my class. Uh, some of them even took the subject, and this is not uncommon, took the subject because of not just me, but because of the teachers in the department with three uh, really good uh, uh, teachers, you know, and they would take uh, the subject uh, on that basis. Back in the day, um, well, looking through my whole career in the classroom, and indeed as a head, I was I was always strict. I was always strict, but the nature of the strictness changed over the years because what you need to remember is, and uh, this is really getting back there now, but what you need to remember is when I started, we were still assaulting young people with lengths of thick leather made in Loch Gelly <laughs> Fife if they stayed um, out of line, you know, and the... Uh, the atmosphere in schools, Darren, was completely different um, uh, back then. And I remember when I was a student, I did some teaching practice in Bellhousen Academy. And the head there uh, at the time was a chap called Ian McMillan. And he was a real charismatic figure. This would this was back in 1976-77. And he looked like a heady, if you know what I mean. He was tall, he was slim, he was baldy, he wore three-piece dark print striped suits, he had white shirts, I'm sure the collar was detachable, he had a really small knot in his tie, and I'm quite sure, although we never asked him, that he'd been in the services, you know, he was just that type of guy, but he was a wonderful guy, and he used to meet us every week for an hour, hour and a quarter or so, and you know, the group of students that were in the school, and he would just talk to us, and we would just sat, we would just sit and we'd listen, and you know the uh, the stories that he, he told us and the advice um, that he gave us. And you know, I'll get back to this later on. But he was a guy that I heard first talking about the importance of relationships. You know, saying that uh, if if a young man asks you, uh, "Are you married?" then tell them. If they ask of you any wins, then tell them. Start to build up that conversation, that relationship. You can then say to them, have you got any brothers or sisters? Are they in the school? 
They say, by the same token, uh, in this school, you will always get asked what team you support. And he said, with the exception of one, it doesn't really matter what you tell them. But again, engage in that conversation. And really looking back on it, he was talking about building relationships with the young people has been the keystone uh, uh, to success. You know, he wasn't talking to us about being an efficient belter or anything uh, like that. You know, that's what he's telling us. But I remember him saying, if somebody's going to be unhappy in the classroom, make sure it's not you. If somebody's going to be unhappy in the classroom, make sure it's not you. So by the same token, what he was saying is, was, you're not there to be everybody's pal. But again, looking back to further down my career, he was talking about setting expectations and making it clear to young people what your expectations were and always challenging them if they weren't meeting uh, these uh, expectations. And I would be, what, 17 years after that, when I was leaving Port Glasgow High School, I get a bit of feedback. Uh, being a science teacher, um, you were in your own situation where the principal teacher of biology or principal teacher of science was your boss, although you were the deputy head and their boss. And you get that across the school, of course. But anyway, the, the head of science was uh, a physicist. And my wee going away, cup of tea, uh, he said, do you have opportunity to talk to uh, some of the pupils about you? And uh, he said, ah, they were saying you were all right. He said, but... Ashley, Ashley Buchan said he's, he's dead strict, he never ever shouts at you and he's a great laugh. You know, and to me he's dead strict, he never ever shouts at you and he's a great laugh. And 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 to me that's that's been one of the things uh, over the years that in my career I've been really proud of, that I've been able to create that kind of atmosphere in the classrooms uh, in the classrooms in which I worked. Um, so um, in terms of being a, a principal teacher, one of the things that was really important for me was uh, to help the folk who were less experienced than me to, to realize that, including myself, we all make mistakes quite often and uh, where possible try to be understanding of these and uh, help people to move on with them, to be organized for them but also uh, within the, the parameters that they were happy to give them as much authority, if you like, to be doing things uh, as they were comfortable with. You know, I didn't believe it was my role to provide everything for them because apart from anything else, I didn't have uh, the monopoly on uh, good ideas. I also like to look out beyond the science department and uh, into the schools, uh, schools as a whole getting involved in uh, extracurricular work, yeah, but also things like uh, work experience and, and, and that kind of thing. That's brilliant. That's a That's lovely, brilliant. lovely few messages there that are definitely coming through. I like that one uh, feedback about being dead, dead strict, but also having a laugh with children and never raising yeah. your voice. I think that kind of goes hand in hand with what you said with 
with relationships what you're being told by I think it was Ian McMillan you said and I think that's yes. things that are that are so relevant still today but yet we're still there's just not enough enough of that out there so moving on now to, to your time as a, as a head teacher you achieved great things in your 20 years at Govan High I, I alluded to that in, in the introduction could you share with the with the listeners what it was what it was like for you on a daily basis at Govan High Aye, well, one of the things I remember is driving round <clears throat> the roundabout at Shield Hall, Shield Hall the first day I was going in, the day I was going in to start. And as I drove round the roundabout, I thought, well, you've really done it now. There's no way back from this one. Because prior to that, as a deputy head or whatever, the, the head teacher was I coming back, you know. <laughs> but, but here I was, I'm driving round this roundabout and I'm uh, heading uh, into the school. And, you know, when you're talking about it on a daily basis, um, as time went on, it became very, very enjoyable. It was uh, it was great. At the start, maybe not quite so much, because I went into a place that was resembling somewhere west of Dodge City or uh, Laramie. You know, the, the level of Aggression and violence in the school was uh, was uh, unbelievable, and I can remember in, uh, one particular day walking along what was the English corridor and thinking to myself, Ian, what the are you doing here? Because here I was, I was only forty. I had got this job against five other people who were leaded, who were more experienced than me, some of whom I'd worked for uh, in my time. And I'm thinking, here we are now, to make matters worse, one of the guys that didn't get that job at Govan got a job just along the road, paying 10 grand a year more in a bigger school. And this school was there, I say, in a leafy suburb. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, and here you are here. What have you done to deserve this year? Now, in that sort of situation, there's a couple of things you can do. You can pack up your pack up your tent and go, or you can roll up your sleeves and we say in the, as we say in these parts, you can get tour in. And I chose uh, to do the latter. Um, I had to work at getting folk alongside me, the young people alongside uh the members of staff, the parents alongside the, uh, the members of staff as well. And one of the things I did initially was um, asked for year group assemblies to be set up so that I could speak to all the year groups. Now, the expression on uh, the face of the deputy head when asked for this to be done was a bit strange. I don't think it happened particularly often uh, in the school. But anyway, and I went and I was talking about well, my values and what I believed in and being positive and, you know, the Henry Ford thing, if you think you can or you can't, you're probably right and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, anyways, up, this was all within the first week and the principal teacher at art pulled me aside one day and she said, oh, I was listening to a conversation in my third year class after your assembly there. And I said, oh, I, and she said, it was two of the girls, uh, and they were well, very complimentary about you in uh, many ways, not the least of which is that rather smart tie that you were wearing, you know. Uh, but she said, 
Then one of them said to the other, but what does he think he's on with all this you can do it stuff? Does he not realise this is government? What does he think he's on with all this you can do it stuff? Does he not realise this is government? And there it was, Darren, in a nutshell. That was the challenge that we were facing. That was the prevailing uh, mood, if you like, uh, within the young people. Does he not realise this is government? Above all, I knew we had a, a culture change in, uh, in the school. You know, we had to get it away for the Wild West to the European city of culture somehow or other. And what I did uh, initially was that I spoke to all the principal teachers individually and I just asked them, right, what's the script? What do we need to do here? You know the place. I don't. I'm just in the door. You're the folk with all the experience and all the knowledge. Now, what they actually asked for wasn't really exactly resonating and chiming with the way I saw things because what they wanted was a really rigorous, strict, disciplinary, their word, not mine, system with a, a whole series of consequences that were punitive, clearly laid out and clearly adhered to. And this was a litany I was getting time after time after time. So I looked at on the the basis of, well, listen, a lot of ways to skin a cat. Let's give these folk what they want to begin with. So we set up a group and they um, worked up this policy which we uh, began to implement. But I was uh, looking down the line to a more positive uh, approach to behaviour management and indeed the relationships thing. But no, let's give the folk what they want initially. And it started to make a bit of a uh, a difference, some impact, and, and and that was great. And we'll come on to this later on, I'm sure. But through the piece, we did get uh, to that culture change. One of the interesting things was if I could forward the tape right to probably within a year of the end. And by that time, you only get suspended, you only get excluded from going high for something that in real life you would get the jail for. So that would be something like assault or drugs or something like that. That's, but apart from that, you didn't get excluded from the school, you know, like persistent low-level disruption and stuff like that. that. That didn't happen. But anyway, I was a guy in the school that always decided if there was to be an exclusion, the deputy head would bring the details to me and give me a recommendation, and I would say either yes, exclude or no. And sometimes... I would say no, sometimes I'd say yes. But anyway, it was this January day, towards the end of January, and I said to him, hey, Phil, it strikes me you've been in here a few times, and it's been it's been assaults and, and uh, violence. Say, can you know off the top of my head? He said, when I asked him, you know, how many times over the past six weeks or so, he said, well, I'll go and find out which didn't come back again. I said, that's no like us. That's uh, it's not like a school. I said, get them in the assembly. So the great thing was about governing the size of the role in our big giant assembly hall. You could get the whole school in the assembly hall. And by the end of it, that's what we're doing on a regular basis, whole school assembly. So anyway, 
Got him in, and as usual, uh, what happened was the deputies would set it all up, and then I would walk in quite regally down the centre, turn round, look at them all, silence, and I would say what I had to say. So this day I said to them, it's a bit unusual today, and it's a bit unusual because usually when we have these assemblies, I'm talking about great stuff we've done and what we've achieved and how well you're all doing, but I said, we're in today because I'm a bit disappointed, and I need to share why I'm disappointed with you. And it's something that only applies to a very few of you, but it's affecting the whole school. And I gave them the details of the figures uh, for the assaults and the violence and that. And I said, what you need to re remember is that, that this isn't going high. That's not our way of doing things. And I'm not having it. Thanks very much. So after about three or four minutes, I'm walking out again. I got halfway up the hall, and that's when the applause started. And when I got to the back of the hall, practically everybody in the school was applauding. And as I got to the back, senior deputy heads at the back, and he said, Ian, it doesn't get any better than this, does it? You know, and that was an indication of how the whole place had, uh, had changed and turned around uh, uh, over these uh, over these years, so that uh, that assembly is a bit of a you know a watershed uh, for me, you know, in my career. You know, the the young people indicate, yeah, this is this is our school, and no, that's not what we're having in our school, and uh, indicating that by uh, by their applause. I was quite as a head, I was quite. Uh, I was quite outgoing in terms of seeking opportunities for the school, um, out with the school, and I became quite well uh, well known for that. So I spent a wee bit of time out of the school, but when I come back again, I uh, always say, uh, you know, that if I was out for a day, then the next day, spent a bit of the morning just wondering, uh, wondering about the place and you know make myself uh, uh, visible again. So, from the cult, uh, the personality, you know, there was at that time a lot of uh, a lot of Ian uh, in the school, and there was a lot of school in Ian too. But I like how you say that there's a lot of school in Ian too. I think we'll come back to that a little bit later on. So thinking about. Kind of a few things here. You kind of spoke about the journey that you took at Govan High from from the start and to, to the end in that culture that you built. What changes and or initiatives did you introduce at Govan High that that really had the most success in in building that culture? Yeah, we had uh, we had a number of things on the go over the years, Dan, and I was uh, I was thinking about this, and I suppose. To get back to the situation I described of what the principal uh, teachers uh, wanted. To get beyond that, we had to look at um, things in a kind of more positive way. Now, one of my colleagues, one of the assistant heads, became aware of something that was going on down in Birmingham. And uh, she said, there's this thing going on down there, and we really need to find out more about it. And it was something that they called Framework for Intervention. 
FFI as they show up they do framework for intervention and basically how it worked Darren was that uh, in terms of classroom management everything started with the learning environment how it was set up how it was organised right down to the nitty gritty of bits and pieces whether it was books or test tubes that the young people needed and the adult with the key role, or adults with the key role in that, you know, the teacher, the uh, support assistants, uh, whatever. And further, when something didn't go the way the way you wanted it to as an adult, there was a checklist which got you to look at whether or not you had actually been responsible for the wheels coming off. Now, this can back to these days, goodness knows how long ago it was, you know, uh, mid to late 90s maybe. Um, this was this was a bit of, I talked about culture, this was a bit of culture shock for some colleagues, but we actually went down to Birmingham to have a look at how it was working, and working it was, and Tim Brickhouse was the Chief Education Officer down there at the time, so it was quite uh, well publicised and I had been in a school before that will not name where in amongst the punitive sanctions was uh, a remove now what that meant was that the teacher could send you a room with a bit of paper and then you sat in that room for the rest of the period supervised by another member of staff in silence like the campaigns knew about the, the booths, you know, um, uh, and these were known by uh, various names at the time. Now, I had been instrumental in that previous school in uh, getting this place uh, in getting this place abolished. So, in going to this, it was completely at the other end of that extreme because it was actually asking folk to look at what they had done, which caused the young person to start disengaging, misbehaving. Now, to some folk, uh, I think anathema would be a, a, a good description. But, but nonetheless, what we did was we got some enthusiasts uh, cascade trained in it, and we uh, moved that out. So that started to have uh, an impact. And then after that, we got involved with a fella called Jeff Moss, now, Jeff Moss was, uh, he was from north of England and he was a specialist in this area. And he talked to us about the psychology of, uh, in essence, getting young people to do what you need them to do so that they can learn uh, effectively. And he was an entertaining man. He was a funny man in a ha-ha sense. And he got his message across really powerfully because what he was talking about was, and bear in mind, this is a long time before Paul Dix ever wrote his book. Um, what he, um, what he, he was talking about uh, back then was the fact that you had to have expectations of the young people, but that the young people had to know what these expectations were. And in the same way as you would teach them how to solve quadratic equations, you had to teach them the expectations or the rules, if you like, 
and that there should be no more than a handful of these and that you should be into almost a negotiation with the young people about what these are because his take on it was ultimately you'll get very few young people who say that they come to school but they don't want to learn anything at all they want to disrupt the place and blah 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 and he, he said to us and he was right it's amazing how easy it is to get young people to come up with the touch points for your classroom that you would actually come up with um, yourself and he's, his point was if you'd involved them in that then we're more likely to stick so we get in, in to this then and he also spoke about uh, the way that you spoke to young people. He said, for example, if a young person is obviously uh, disengaged, not on task, and you get up to them and say, you need to finish that exercise, that gives them the opportunity to say, no, I don't. And then you get into that pantomime situation of, oh, yes, you do, or no, I don't. And he said, that's leading nowhere. If, however, you say, look, I need you to finish that exercise. He said, they can't for a minute gain say what your needs are. You're the person who knows what your needs are. And he said, that is, now they may ask you something like, why? And he said, that's why, that's why you're there as a teacher. That's when you move into the relevance, the importance, what it's leading to, what it's come from. Everybody else in the room is doing it, bloody, bloody, blah. And uh, I love a description that, that Jack Black use, uses about things that uh, only works. And we discovered that this stuff only works. And it gained momentum within the school. Now, at, at one time in the school, Referrals were like a cottage industry. That's referrals out of departments to an assistant head at the time or a deputy head. And we had to have one assistant head who dealt only with referrals from fourth year. And he might get 70 or 80 in the course of a week. Think about it. 70 or 80 in the course of a week. By the time I left the school, we had one guy doing referrals for the whole school. And it was an unusual week for him if he get as many as three or four. And why was that? It wasn't because it wasn't because we had a totalitarian, totalitarian regime running in the place with a corporal and indeed maybe capital punishment for some uh, offences. It was because we built relationships. And, you know, I often joke, you know, the Tony Blair thing about education, education, education. Well, relationships, relationships, relationships. And that's what we found turned the corner in uh, school culture. And we'd get folk coming back who had left in the early days to go and work somewhere else. And they would say things like, don't recognise this place. But I love wee anecdotes, and I'll tell you when to finish off this wee, uh, this wee segment. And it's... A boy has been uh, excluded, suspended for assault. So he comes in for the return to school interview. Now, there's two unusual things about the interview. First of all, 
it was his dad that was in with him, which was very unusual. And secondly, I actually did my, them myself back in these days. Uh, as uh, time as time went on, uh, I didn't feel that I didn't need to do that. By this time, however, I had learned that you don't conduct these interviews in your own office. Because if you're in your own office and it goes wrong, you've got nowhere to go, you're in your own office. If you're in an interview room, you can say, this interview's over. No, it's not. Well, I'm leaving, so it is. If you're sitting in your own office, darling, that's hard. So I get this tip from a friend who was a senior police officer. He says, that's why we have interview rooms, Ian. So anyway, so I get into this interview room and a fella said to me, before you start, Mr. White, you are 100% correct, and I have told him that. I have told him that he shouldn't have hit him in the school. He should have waited and got him down the road. <laughs> now, I wasn't pretending that was changing society yet, but hey, there was a message I'd get out there, and that was that you don't do that stuff within the school. So that was one aspect. Another aspect was uh, leadership in the context of staff and indeed uh, uh, young people. When I went there, it was very much uh, a kind of command and control system, you know, <clears throat> and that anything that was perceived to be important, they heeded it. Even if somebody else had done 99% of the work to set it up, the Hedy went on stage and said, well, here we are, and to all the credit. And, and an assistant head, and it was the first day I was actually in the school. That day I drove round the roundabout was an in-service day, so there wasn't any wains. And he had set this whole day up. And he said, okay, this is what we're doing, Ian. I sent you the, the programme, so if you could just get out there and do the introduction for the day, he said, we'll get started. And I said, Jim, why on earth would I do that? He said, how do you mean? I said, this is your day. You put this whole thing together. You're up there. You introduce it. This is all your work. Oh, he said. I said, why would I do it? He said, oh, that's the way it always happens. And I thought, hmm, not anymore. And I tried to move it and I did successfully over to facilitate and enable. And we'll come back to this probably later on in a bit more detail. But one of the <clears throat> one of the things was people that worked for me came to realise that if you come up with an idea, then you would get the opportunity to run with that idea, get people round about you, develop it through and see where it goes. Now Philip Graham, who was one of the deputies at Governing came to work with me at Newlands eventually. He said, uh, he said, ah, he said, working with Ian, he said, it's amazing. He comes up with this idea and it can be something like, right, we need a submarine here and we need it to run in Vimto. He said, uh, and he'll throw that in front of you and then somebody will say, Ah oh, well, maybe we could write. Okay, so so you'll get the job uh, uh, to go on with. It. And then he said, "You crack it," and you're going to see me say, "Ian, we've done it. Somebody 
It's past its trials. It's now running in Vimto. And then he says to you, well, no, it'd be really good. See if you could get that submarine to come out of the water and fly. And, you know, that was the way we worked. No matter how good we got at something, we were always self-evaluative, always self-critical. How can we do this even better? And folk are used to that. Most people liked it, but some didn't. You know, uh, we used to have folk co-opted on the senior leadership team, and there was a great story come out. It was a great story come out and it was uh, I'm not saying anything more in there say anything in there come up with an idea you just finish up a whole load of work for yourself some people don't buy into that approach most people uh, uh, do so the notion of leadership then there was the, the curriculum when I went there at first with 5% of the young people went to higher education and the whole curriculum was organised for them so a simple arithmetician can work out that it's, it's no been run for 95% of the folk that are going to school. And that is no right. So we worked on that too, and we, we come up with a revised system which was offering less standard grades, more vocational options, and <clears throat> was adopting a system of presentation when ready, which allowed the bright wings to move on. So we had kids, for example, who were gaining national fives at the end of second year because we abolished second year as it was then. And we just took them from first year straight into uh, options, choices. Uh, and um, that was because we had seen second year as been start and finish a, a total waste of time, uh, uh, really. So how did we get to that stage? Well, the first thing we did was that uh, Kevin Sweeney, uh, another super deputy head, Kevin himself had been uh, born and brought up challenging socio-economic circumstances in Easter House. And Kevin had a great empathy and, and, and feeling with the situation in Govan. And we're talking about the, the curriculum and how it was in the match and uh, everybody's needs and what he did was he set up a series of what we called curriculum conferences. <clears throat> and what that involved was it got all the stakeholders in a room together. We employed a facilitator. And when I say the stakeholders, it was the young people, it was parents, it was uh, business people from the community, it was folks from the universities, the colleges. And the whole focus was what should we be doing here? What should we be doing here? You know, what should, what should we be offering? What's the point of this place? And the point of this place for most of the young people is to get a job. And we translated that eventually into a positive destination. So we say our curriculum conference, we come up with the, the new model of curriculum with more vocational options. We wrote it all out on two sides of A4 because I knew that Ronnie O'Connor, the director of education, wouldn't read any more than that. Took the paper in, left it for him with Susan, his PA, and the next day, the other day after, I got a phone call from her. Director wants to meet you all. He thinks you're onto something here. <coughs> what we had then was huge support from the Director of Education. 
who actually came out and worked with us. And we had uh, we had three different sessions with him after school running at maybe half seven at night. And what we come up with was a new curriculum structure, which catered for everybody. Still catered for those who would go to higher education and catered better uh, for the rest. And in that, we brought in the future skills strategy where we'd a big emphasis on identifying, developing, assessing, recording and reporting on skills being developed by the young people against a taxonomy that we uh, develop. And lastly, I think, once we had the emphasis on <coughs> everybody for a positive destination, um, that made a real So over the Sorry. Just to get you a figure or two, because I know that some folk in education are keen on things. Um, over the piece, by the time I left, positive destinations had risen from almost from 66% to almost 100. Entry into higher education from 5% to 15%, and it was 17% a year after I left. Attendance <coughs> up from 77% to 90%. <clears throat> Five or more S4 students with SCQF level three up from 28% to 100%. Level four from 7% to 60.3%. And five or more uh, level five and S4 from 0% to 10.3%. When, by the way, incidents uh, of exclusion also fell by 77% uh, over. Uh, piece and uh, you know these would be the I suppose the uh, the measurements uh, the measurements of us to back up um, what I've been saying because uh, people are going to say I saw you all right not very well for you to say it was a rare place but uh, what did you uh, what did you actually do maybe the evidence sums it up and that's a lot a lot of really really fascinating things you took there that I think a lot of the listeners will, will take a lot from and, and we'll, we might come back to a little bit later on as, as we talk about education in, in general in Scotland. So just before, just to sum up your time at Govan High and your time there, what, what was your most proudest moment? Um, that's really, um, really difficult. That, that assembly day was a, uh, was a biggie um, when that happened. Uh, when I looked out one day and we'd gone from almost 0% school uniform to 100%, that was another project. Not because I intrinsically believed in school uniform, but again, people that worked with me, the parent body, believed in it. So I said, well, let's do it. Now, we were only the second school in Glasgow to get everybody in its school uniform. Knightswood Secondary did it first, and we did it. Uh, saying, now everybody's in uh, school uniform, so it's not news anymore. But that was a proud uh, uh, moment when big uh, when big Robert, who had left us and gone an apprenticeship in BAE Systems, became the Scottish Apprentice uh, of the Year. Apprentice, every single apprentice in Scotland, he was named as the Scottish Apprentice uh, of the Year. That was. Uh, that was uh, that was proud. Other times when 
I phoned my ducks, Martin Willis, come back in in his uniform to assembly to talk to the pupils about becoming an airline pilot. And all wonderfully, he started off by saying, a lot of you will be sitting there saying, what's an airline pilot got to do with me? But what you've got to remember is I'm Martin Willis. That's my brother sitting there. You know my family, I come from wherever it was in a street in Lint House, and I used to be sitting out there just the same as you, and I'm now an airline pilot. You know, so so that was uh, that was indeed a that was indeed a proud uh, moment. So, but you know, umpteen of them, uh, umpteen of them, over uh, over the piece. Um, I think you know when. I was leaving a, a young girl, one of the seniors who'd only been with us a, a short while, come in and gave me a present. And I said, oh, that's very kind of you. And she said, this is the only school I've ever come to where people were nice to me. And I was I was proud of the student body uh, at that time. So, aye, these, these kind of things. You go on and on and on. Um, especially as you, as you think and more and more of them as you, as you speak. <laughs> I know there's just so so many things. So thinking about about your times ahead, before we move on to to other ventures in your career, and then to talk about education in a, in the wider sense, what surprised you you most when you were working as a head teacher? How much Darren is actually out there in terms of support for your school if you go looking for it? If you go out there, for example, we took a membership on at the Southside Business Club for the school. Why on earth would we join a business club? Well, the business club meeting regularly would have 60 or 80 employers at it, wouldn't it? You know, and getting out of there. I remember one day when they were building the big new uh, hospital, which hasn't been without its challenges since it opened at the Southern General site. Before they started construction, the, the consortium that was uh, uh, designing and building it and the health board ran a seminar for Career Scotland people and head teachers and whatnot uh, about career opportunities in the new hospital. Would you believe that I was the only head teacher that was there? Yeah, I was the only head teacher that accepted the invitation because I went out there and see when I went in situations like that, I was as the same governor, I was like that, yes! Because if I'm the only one there, I'm the guy who's going to be shaking their hand. And, you know, we got huge opportunities for the uh, for the young people, uh, for the young people out of that. And I had a colleague uh, come up to me one day at Hedy's meeting and something had come out that here again we were involved in some uh, something that or other with the government initiative. And this Hedy comes up to me and he said, and... I need to uh, sanitise the conversation a bit for, <coughs> for this podcast, but they uh, inquired of me as to why Govan High get everything. And I said to him, I said, well, it's quite simple, really. Unlike you, I don't sit on my proverbial in my office and wait for it to come to me. You go and get it. So that was the thing that astounded me, that if you actually went out and looked for it, you know, you could get funding, you could get you could get things in kind, you could get uh, uh, this, and, this and that. If you just went at it with 
the uh, with the right attitude. And um, if you if you let people see that there was something beyond the altruism in it for them as well, that was that was good if you could manage that one too. That's wonderful. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing your time at Govan. We're now moving on to, to your time at Newlands Junior College. Uh, could you share with the listeners how Newlands Junior College came about, how you got involved, and and how that worked differently? Aye. Well, if you think I've been on for ages about Govan, although Newlands only lasted five years, we could be here for a week. Um, Newlands Junior College came about really initially because of uh, one person, and that was uh, Jim McCall. Uh, Jim McCall, the, well, originally he was an engineer, but then entrepreneur, financier, uh, blah, de, blah, de, blah. But Jim had been, uh, he'd been tasked by uh, the government to find out what it was that was lacking uh, in the interface between the schools and employment that was leading to so many people becoming unemployed. And there was uh, a couple of things. Uh, one of them was called Glasgow Works, and I just forget the name of the other one, not come back to me. But anyway, that led me to meet him at uh, meetings in the Govan area, and it was uh, fascinating. He actually found out that if you took all the money that was been ploughed into Govan unsuccessfully to get folk into work. You could give everybody that was unemployed in Govan 20,000 a year. And he said, this is the economics of the madhouse, you know. And But what he came to appreciate was that there was a great waste of talent amongst young people. He came across young people in schools, as he put it, who were really talented, but weren't at that stage in their life interested in academic study. And school didn't suit them, and in a number of cases, many cases, they would disengage from school and drop out of the system. And this vexed him a bit, and he was looking for ways around about this, and he came up with the idea of a different type of educational establishment that would have a different type of curriculum and a different type of focus. Now the focus was going to be on positive destinations, either a place in further education or a job at the end of it. It would take young people in third and fourth year and it would give them a curriculum with three strands, really. A traditional academic strand, a vocational strand, and a personal development strand. So that was his idea. And he called all the heads in Glasgow and the directorate team to a, to a dinner, which was uh, extremely nice, and he paid for it all, and uh, well, a really nice time. But I was flabbergasted by the things that some of my colleagues uh, were saying. One person said, why don't you just give us the money? We're good at this. And Jim said, well, actually, the reason that we're here tonight is that all the statistics tell us that you're not good at this, and it needs a different uh, approach. And I was tuning phone, and eventually he was talking about a place that would uh, 
have 20 students in each year group. Eventually, that went up to 30. I said to him, in a, almost a wee bit of exasperation, I said, how many places did you say you were going to have in this school? And he said, 20. I said, great, let me know when it's opening. I'll take them off for government. I knew Jim McCall because through meeting him through his uh, 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 Glasgow Works and Welfare to Work, that was the other initiative, um, he'd been in the school and invited him in to do the, the keynote at our award ceremony and, and things like that. So, so I knew him. So as things developed on a wee bit, he had somebody who was working for him in one of his companies who was a former university lecturer. But this guy was running gym and one of his companies had like an internal college where the, the company worked a four and a half day week. But on the fifth half day, folk could access, um, you know, like remote learning and whatnot, and it was linked up with universities through, um, through this internal uh, uh, college. So this, this fellow, Bill Gerrard, he got, he got busy and he, he developed the the principle up to a point at which he said to Jim, "Look, you really know, you really need to get somebody involved who's au fait with the secondary school system." So, I think because he knew what we were trying to do at Govan, and well, because he knew me, um, he asked if I could get seconded from a post at Govan to help develop the idea uh, a bit further. So. After, there was talk of a, a three-month secondment, but I didn't want to do that. So what I agreed with the person who was the director by that time and Jim McCall was that they would specify what they wanted done. And I would do it off-site and basically once I'd done it, I would get by at work again. So it took me four and a half weeks. That was, uh, that was all. Amazing. See if you're only working on one thing. <laughs> You've got so much amazing. time. See, one thing with no dis distractions and, and uh, disruptions, you know, it was absolutely amazing. It's through a power. So I prepared two papers, one on how the curriculum would be uh, implemented and delivered and what it would cost. So I put these together and they went. So Jim had a wee um, development team, which composed uh, was composed of uh, himself, a couple of directors from his organisation, an architect. Then Keir Bloomer uh, became involved, and I get I get kind of souped into that. So I was going to East Kilbride on a reasonably uh, regular basis uh, to these meetings, and then things developed on and on. And I was in East Kilbride one day, and he said, uh, "They tell me just the two of us." He said, they tell me that you would like a job running this place. I said, well, it sounds really exciting. He said, okay, what would it take? I said, how do you mean? He said, what do you want to leave your job at the moment and come and work in this? What do you want? I thought, man, this is some, you know, so with a wee conversation. Uh, and then... <clears throat> I got out into my car phone gear and said, hey, I think I just got offered a job there. And right enough, that was just at this time of year, just before the spring break. And he got in touch during the spring break because they didn't see him after the break. And there it was, I went in to see him and he pushed a paper across and it was all this stuff all, uh, all typed up. So we shook hands. 
And I go outside and I said to Gail, oh, I have got a new job right enough. I better go down to Govan and tell them that. So five weeks later, I was the head, the principal of Newlands Junior College with no premises apart from a shell, no colleagues and no students. But uh, that was where it started, you know. Um, it was set up as an independent school and most of the money came from backers that Jim had, his, his own people in the uh, uh, Clyde Bloss capital, of course. Also folk like uh, Scottish Gas, the Weir Group, at the start, uh, Scottish Power, Arnold Clark organisation were uh, terrific uh, supporters as well. And it was set up uh, to run over the five years, taking young people for the third and fourth year who had disengaged or were disengaging, putting them uh, into a different situation and uh, aiming for a positive destination at uh, the end of it. And the maximum that we would have would be 60 young people, 30 in each year group. And we had the core curriculum of English, Maths, IT and Science. Uh, and the vocational curriculum, they had nine vocational options, at the, mostly at the City and Glasgow College. And then we had a person seconded from uh, Skillforce Scotland who did a lot of the personal development work with them, as done courses at bronze, silver and gold level, and uh, uh, the Duke Edinburgh Award, and outdoor education, uh, national navigation awards, things uh, uh, like that. So at the end of it, the, the young people were coming out, and everybody who stayed with us for the two years, um, everybody who did that either got a place in further education college or a job, an apprenticeship, and they were coming up, coming out with, I mean, if you bear in mind that these young people came to us and two-thirds of them had a reading age of nine and a half or less, two-thirds of them reading age of nine and a half or less, and math, mathematically, numerically, it was kind of uh, uh, similar. The success was beyond reasonable expectation. I believed it was going to work. I wanted to make it work. I expected it to work. And I'm telling the trustees all of this at the start. But I didn't have a clue. Eh, damn, you know, it was a kind of square this kind of situation, you know, this <laughs> this better work, you know. Um, but it was uh, it was just but the most important thing that we did was the relationships. Build the relationships with the young people. Mm -hmm. uh, get them to appreciate you're not the enemy. And it took usually for most of them about five or six weeks. And then they just flew after that. Um, some of them took, uh, 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 took a wee bit longer. And it, it had its moments. It wasn't all, uh, it wasn't all, uh, it wasn't all fun and laughter. But nine odd percent it was. I had folks saying to me at the time, "You have taken Govan High School from where it was to where it is now. You have turned that place around. You've achieved all that stuff. And now you're going to work with Wayne's." The other schools are throwing it, and you off your head, man. <laughs> but we took with us, you know, back to that approach about the relationships and how you deal with the young people, how uh, how you treat them, and all of the graduates, all of them get at least five SQA qualifications. Over eighty percent of them had five or more at say, level four. All of them had at least one at level five. 
Some of them had five at level five. And we even had one young girl who, this is at the end of fourth year, had three hires. And she, when she came to us at the end of second year, had been in three different secondary schools. But she finished up with three hires. And with this flexibility approach, we actually only taught her English. She did uh, psychology and, was it philosophy or sociology, something like that. But we uh, negotiated with the college down the road to deliver them. So she only came to us part of the time and went there. Meeting the learner's needs. Absolutely. Meeting their needs. One time we laid out the uh, vocational office offers and, and for nine different subjects to choose three from. And this voice says, how's there no childcare? A week later with childcare. If you've got that opportunity to offer that, offer offer that opportunity, it's what I'm trying to say, to meet their needs. And of course the children are going to flourish, aren't they? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, a boy said to me once, he said, you know, he said, I'm not stupid. He said, I just didn't used to bother. Now, I am not saying that schools are bad places, Dan. No, they're absolutely not. No. 20 years in one week. But see, when I was at Govan, we would lose these lanes as well, and I could see them going, and we didn't have the flexibility mm -hmm. or the wherewithal to make that difference, and uh, we lost them. Whereas we had very much a focus on them, like in the morning, if one of them didn't turn up, we phoned. If there was no answer on the phone, somebody went round, ch -ch 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 -ch, chapped the door. Um, it was that kind of... And people would say, you shouldn't need to do that. And I would say, but if we don't do it, who is going to do it? Because we, we were looking at was to break a mould of successive generations of unemployment such that these young people would be skilled in a way that their parents weren't, no harm to them, not their fault, and that their offspring in turn would have a different set of opportunities in life because of what we're creating. Now, the economic argument for this is just huge. It's more expensive, okay, than uh, a regular secondary school. But if you factor in what these these uh, clients of ours would be liable to cost in welfare payments, mm -hmm. national health payments, because they'll be healthier after being was. And worst of all, if they get to the criminal justice system, that's the most expensive. No, in actual fact, more than all that, they'll have jobs and they'll actually be contributors, they'll be taxpayers. So um, one of the board of trustees who's an accountant by profession, he said, I have never seen a return on investment like this in my whole life. And one of the great things for us as a staff was you could actually see the difference you were making, you know, and it was just, it was just so rewarding, um, more so than anything else that I'd done over the years. So that was, uh, that was NJC. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been it's been great kind of chat, listen to your stories around about your times as head. We're now gonna kinda of turn the, the conversation around and we're gonna talk a little bit a little bit about leadership and then we're gonna talk a little bit about Scottish education to, to finish up. 
So Ian, uh, you've spoken about responsibility and courageous leadership before. I watched a, a YouTube video from a creative conversation that, that you must have done a, a while ago with David Cameron. Oh, uh, yeah, that yeah. Was awesome. yeah, that was fun. Could you share what, what you mean by responsibility and courageous leadership and what that looks like? Okay, in terms of uh, responsibility, I read uh, a book by Rudy Giuliani, who of course was a mayor of New York City, and he was uh, the mayor at the time of uh, 9 11, and he gained a lot of uh, sort of publicity at that time uh, because of his response as uh, the mayor. Nowadays, or more recently, right enough, he's been a legal advisor to Donald Trump, so I don't know whether that's kind of uh, dimmed his light a wee bit in the eyes of some, but uh, uh, passing on from that, he wrote this book called Leadership. And in it, he tells you that on his desk in uh, New York City, he had a wee, you know, like a nameplate, like a desk nameplate, only it wasn't his name on it. It said, I'm responsible. So everybody who came in saw that thing, I'm responsible. Now, what he didn't mean, he didn't mean that he had to sort out every individual tiny thing in New York City. What I meant was he had overall responsibility. However, for each and every person who worked for New York, who came into his office, he was giving them the message, I'm responsible. In other words, you're responsible too for your bit of it. And that was a, that was a really kind of watershed moment for me. And I started to talk about this uh, when I was out speaking, you know, speaking uh, to the staff uh, in the school. And I would say things like, well, see the next time that you hear somebody in a staff room or a base room chat moaning and saying somebody should, then just say to them, why don't you? You've identified the situation. Why don't you? It's about everybody taking on appropriate um, responsibility. And there was... Uh, a great story in the book as well about when uh, Giuliani became mayor of New York and through time, they had this real problem that when folks stopped their car at traffic lights, people would run out, guys would run out, sponge down their windscreen and then demand money from them with menaces uh, for the job that they'd done. And he was talking in his office with a wee sign there to the chief of police and the chief of police said, there ain't no law, sir, uh, against sponging down windscreens. And Giuliani said to him, yeah, but that sure as hell is against jaywalking. Get it sorted. And what they did then was they nabbed the people who were doing that for jaywalking. Because, as you know, in the States, they can be quite strict about jaywalking. So it's about that taking um, responsibility. You're the guy that can fix this. So uh, get it sorted. Might need a bit of coaching, might need a bit of advice, but it's about taking that responsibility. Now, I was always a great believer that in the school, I buried my own dead, as it were. I, as far as possible, looked after Govan High School. Now, that went back to the days when I was a principal teacher, when um, we held that view within the department. And I remember one day 
for some reason or other, I sent a referral to an assistant head, a bit of boy. And two minutes later, he appeared at my door. So I opened the door and I said, hi, Smithy, what is it? What can I do for you? And he said, I'm here because of that referral. And I said, what? You know, just got it. He says, I know, but I never, ever got referrals for, get referrals from you. So I knew, I knew it must be really serious. That's why I'm here. You know, and if you create that kind of uh, culture that, um, you know, you look after things and, you know, even me as a big shot, as a principal teacher, if I was having a bit of an issue with a student, one of the other two biology teachers would say, oh, I'll tell you, I'm sure. And it's just that responsibility. What they were doing at that stage was, of course, they were taking the confrontation away so that when both I and the student had cooled down a wee bit, we could talk it through <laughs> and sort it out. So it's this, um, I'm responsible. Now, when we went to uh, Newlands, one of the great things at Newlands was independent school and all that, but I never, ever, ever heard the phrase, oh, that's not my job. Now, how often do you hear that in a school? Oh, that's not my job. Never heard that at Newlands. People just got on and did what had to be done, but we were operating under a different regime there. We had a different type of accountability. We didn't have QIOs coming in. We didn't have regular uh, QIO reviews. We didn't have annual uh, appraisals of me by the director of education or, or, or one of his or her accolades. Oh no, what happened back near the start was that we'd all worked in a local authority and we were kind of conditioned, if you like, to the way it operated. And Jim McCall, who was the chair, as I said before, of the Board of Trustees, he said to me one day, look, Ian, I'm an engineer and a financier and an entrepreneur. You're the educationist. Will you the guys stop asking us, can we do this? Or indeed saying, we've put this in place. He said, you're the educationist. We brought you here personally because you're good at what you do and you brought these other people. Get on with it. However, every three months we had a meeting at the Board of Trustees and before that meeting I had to issue uh, a report, an update, a progress report and then at the meeting of the Board of Trustees I got questions asked of me about that report. Now these guys didn't pull back, they didn't mess around, they were all from the private sector. I had to have the answers when I went in there. And after I would write the report and I would draw in information from all my colleagues, then before it, I would talk to them individually and sometimes as a group and it would be, I'd be saying to them things like, right, what am I going to say when I get in there? This isn't looking as good as it should. Why is that? And what are we doing about it? Now, see, in that circumstance, I felt infinitely more accountable and responsible than I ever did surrounded by QIOs and processes and systems. This was simple. I wrote the report and they grill me on it. And then see if I told them, 
we're no happy with this. And I can see by your facial expression, neither are you. And here is what we're doing. You better believe that it was a really good idea for the next quarterly meeting to have a progress report that was telling them there was improvement in that particular area. You see, where we were at in Newlands, I used to say to my colleagues, anything other than success here isn't an option. It's not an option. So, sure as anything, we had to uh, we had to make it worth work, and it was terrific. It was absolutely terrific. Now, okay, I was uh, a bit edgy and apprehensive going into some of these meetings, but I was going in with confidence because I knew there was mutual trust in that room, and I knew that if we weren't delivering as well as we might, then in terms of whatever we were doing, the improvement was either coming or had come, and we could go to that uh, with confidence. So, in a sense, courageous leadership is a lot easier in that situation, where you're not having to ask, can I do this? Because what you tend to find in the local authority system is you'll get 42 reasons why you can't do it. And it's almost as if, I might have mentioned this earlier on in, uh, in the interview, we're in a situation right now in this world where something's happening and people are dying and it's awful. In education, making changes to the curriculum or how it's delivered, nobody's going to die. It is not that serious. So courageous leadership led me as a head teacher to build on the advice that I got from the venerable head at Govan High, Donald McPhail, that I think I spoke about before, who was a really, really wise man. And he said to me, sometimes, Ian, we don't ask the question because once the question is asked, we may get the answer that we're not looking for. So I just started doing stuff. I just started doing stuff. And um, what I found from that was and doing stuff, if it didn't work, you stopped doing it. If it did work, whether it was against guidelines or not, you kept on doing it. And then you were able to say, when this review did come around to the QIO, well, okay, we're doing this now, which doesn't meet the guidelines, and we're experiencing this success. We followed the guidelines before, and we didn't have the success. So are we going back to the guidelines so that we can experience failure? Now, they find that they find this pretty hard to deal with, I can tell you. So, courageous leadership is doing that kind of thing. And I spoke earlier on about the unhealthy, the unhealthy culture of uniformity and conformity in the Scottish system. And I was lucky enough about 18 months ago to get to hear Michael Fullen speak uh, when he was in Edinburgh. And 
and one of the breaks I went up to him and I, I raised this whole thing uh, with him and he said to me something along the lines of uh, you're here asking that question but he said I'm thinking that you've maybe got the answer anyway he said for you and that's the thing for me I'm brave enough to do that I'm brave enough to do that but what he said was what you need to do or what people need to do is look for the wiggle room look for the wiggle room and exploit the wiggle room brilliant I love that look for the for the wiggle room. Um, so you've you've spoken a lot about your time at Govan, your time at New and Junior College, and there's there's a bit there's differences appearing in, in the different times. So let's think about the time at Govan and your time as, as head teacher of a school and a local authority. Do head teachers have enough autonomy in Scotland, and should they have more autonomy, Ian? <laughs> You're having a laugh, Dan. You are having a laugh. Do head teachers have enough autonomy? I wish I had the paper with me right now. The head teacher's charter, I don't know what's ever happened to that, but it was rejigged, it was rewritten. And forgive me, because it's a wee while since I analysed this thought about it and wrote it down, and I don't have the paper with me here. But in the redrafted one, it doesn't take, I don't think it takes as far as paragraph three till it's telling you that you work for the local authority and if they don't like what you're proposing they'll tell you not to do it and I can't remember the figure now but it's something like 13 or 15 or 17 times in less than two pages of A4 local authority is mentioned they are kidding on compare that to you the educationist get on with it compare that to that now, I had an interesting situation in the Newlands days when I got a letter from none other than Jim Sellers. And Jim Sellers wrote to me enclosing a book that he'd written. And he said, I'm no an educationist, but I've been reading about what you're doing at Newlands. And this was the whole idea of the, the focus on the positive destinations, the, the vocational training finding out what young people's aspirations are and working with them to uh, meet them, getting them a job, that sort of thing. He said, I've got a chapter in here in education, and I think we're pretty close in what we're saying. So I read his book, which was interesting, and the chapter on education, and he was right. So as a consequence of that, uh, I met him for a couple of hours, and then he came to the school and with a session with the staff and then with uh, uh, the young people. But he was saying when he was researching uh, for his book and getting in touch with head teachers, he found it almost impossible to find somebody as a head teacher who would say, oh yeah, I'll do that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll to all the accountability you want. Now in my experience, <clears throat> and I've been at, through doing the scale fellowship, uh, a couple of years ago, I have been at discussions with people from Education Scotland, which were uh, allegedly informing the development of, for example, a head teacher's charter. And as I listened to other head teachers there, they 
we're obsessing on crazy things. If I get this entitlement and accountability, I'll need to worry about repairing the windows. And what about the HR function? And if I get 80 applications for a job, I'll need to send out all these letters. And what I was trying to say is, no, you've got a janitor that does the building. You've got admin staff that do the letters. You're the boss, and what you do is you set the priorities for the people that work for you. I said, the last time I checked, it was my job not to do the admin work, but to tell the admin people what I want it done. And if they say there's too much, then you say to them, right, rang order them. Rang order them. And we don't do the ones that are least important. We don't do the ones that are least important. David Cameron talks about this. Which plates are you going to allow to break? You heard David saying this. Yeah. yeah. Which plates are you going to allow to break? But in my opinion, in my opinion, the trouble is that we recruit head teachers to do the type of jobs that head teachers have done for years and years and years and years and years and years. And years. We don't recruit them for the head teacher's job of the future, which is about all of that accountability and responsibility. So some of the head teachers you get appointed, sure. It just so happens they have what you know. It just so happens they have the personality that allows them to adapt to do this, but others don't. And they're a square peg in a round hole. Square peg in a round hole. And they can't adapt in this way and they find it threatening. I once heard, uh, when I was involved in one of these discussions, uh, two primary heads from a local authority that will remain nameless. But they were being told that they had the responsibility of opening and closing a building. So like cleaners are in at six in the morning, so you go along and open the door for the cleaners. And I say to them, you just say no. I'm not doing that. You are a, you have the ultimate responsibility. No. Learning teaching and leadership. That's me. The building is somebody else. Of course, the building has to be opened at that time and closed at whatever time. But see, courageous leadership has been willing to say no. We made all the changes at Coven High. We changed the curriculum. We had the support of the Director of Education at the time. I told you before, he was out two, two and a half hour meetings, three hour meetings, sleeves rolled up. This is brilliant. On you go. Um, the regime at headquarters changed. We had an inspection. HMI didn't particularly like what we were doing. This caused a bit of hoo-ha because we said we're meeting the needs and aspirations of the young people and we are not changing. And this went on. And 
then came a review a few months after the HMI had been and had reported. And the question was asked by QIO, how has your curriculum structure changed since the HMI inspection? Now, before I could open my mouth, one of the deputy heads said it hasn't. Now, that provoked a silence like that one there. So he repeated it just for emphasis and because he was enjoying it. But it hasn't. It? Um, you don't have the uh, compulsory modern languages uh, till the end of S4. No, that's right. In the same way as we don't have compulsory sciences, we don't have compulsory anything apart from uh, literacy and numeracy. Because that is the way we've set it up, and young people opt into things that interest them. Well, they should be doing modern languages. Okay, said somebody else at the table. Fine. We've got one modern languages teacher, and believe it or not, her time is absolutely used up 100%. So, to recruit another modern languages teacher, to make all the Wayne's do this modern language that they don't want to do, then we have to increase the staffing complement. So you're giving us an art teacher then. So that wasn't happening. Okay then, we can do this, but uh, across the board, every child in the school will get less maths or English. Oh, I can't be doing that. And this was the sort of line we took. We didn't change a thing. <clears throat> Because, as I may have said earlier, I can't remember now, uh, the yellow book at the time, which had the curriculum guideline, curriculum structure guidelines, I told the inspectors that, um, you know, I, you might not believe this, but I was really clever at school. And I got an A pass in my higher English, and I actually found out that I got a band one A pass in my higher English. So that means that I know what the word guideline means. A guideline is something that is a piece of advice. And you can choose to follow the guideline or not. I said, now, by the same token, uh, I live in Guruk and I get my recycling uplifted at the Kip site. However, I live five minutes from a recycling centre. If I choose to, I can go and dump my stuff in the recycling centre, save the local authority a bit of bother and, and no take up what they're offering. I said, it's the same sort of thing. I said, so, um, basically, you are giving us advice on what the curriculum should look, look like. It doesn't meet the needs and aspirations of the young people in government or the government community or our stakeholders, so therefore we are choosing in the interest of our community to ignore your advice. Thank you. The lead balloon, of course, crashed through the ceiling at this point that I know what a guideline means did not go down well. But it was true. But I think the key there, Ian, is definitely that in everything that you're saying and you said, you've said it throughout the interview, is that you're meeting the needs of the learners. And that is exactly Absolutely. everything that we should be doing in a school. And you're you're totally right. I totally believe you. I'm, I mean, I'm just a teacher. I, 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 I can't change much from, from my position, but I believe... And what you're saying that if we're, we need to meet the needs of the learners, but there's no point in sending them to do things that they just don't need. And you know, 
I wasn't doing this for badness or for my own enjoyment because believe me, this was a lot more difficult than just following the guidelines. <laughs> okay. This gave me a lot of more the personal angst and anxiety and and my colleagues on the leadership team. But we were meeting the needs of I was at a parent council meeting once and the QIO came in and it was after this inspection and he, he sat down and I introduced him. Really nice fella, great guy. I had a lot of respect for him. And before I said a word, one of the mammies said, I hope you don't think you're going to, you're here to change your curriculum, she said. <laughs> he said, I'm not here to change anything, I'm just here to talk to you. <laughs> you know, and that was the extent to which the parent body were, because they had been consulted. We had set up the Kevin had set up the curriculum conferences, and been and the reason we're doing this stuff was because the community told us this is what they wanted and what they needed. And the other thing was, by the way, it was driving up the destinations. It was actually funnily enough driving up the uh, HE destinations, and it was also driving up um, attainment. This approach, this curriculum structure in combination with a focus and emphasis on relationships was just driving everything uh, everything up. So so we were in, we believed, uh, a strong position. However, it did seem a wee bit like a war of attrition. <laughs> you know, and I had numerous folk who, who, who come in to help and advise me. David used to come in here, Bloomer come in. Bob Mackay, who's sadly no longer with us, he would uh, he would come in and uh, you know they would say uh, you'll need to watch you guys because I think you're actually starting to enjoy this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know they, what they were saying was um, don't go into battle mode too quickly. Uh-huh. You know, into battle mode too quickly, and and they were uh, they were dead right, but absolutely. All the time I would say, how is this going to benefit the young people? And if somebody couldn't tell me or the answer was no, then whatever it was, we didn't do it. How is it going to benefit the young people? Because that's why we're there. I mean, I had a nice salary at Govan High and a, a nice standard of living as a consequence, but Govan High was there to give me a job. Govan High was to be was there to meet the needs and the aspirations of the community. And by that token, Govan High wasn't the same as anywhere secondary, or shouldn't it be. Even the secondary that's two miles along the road, my belief is, should be looking at what is unique here. And it takes us back to what I have said before. It goes beyond what the community as a group is looking for, to the individual young people in the school. Yeah. You know, it's like the boy that hates maths but loves technical. And this is a true story. Why do we keep sending them back to maths? Why don't we get the technical teachers to teach them the maths he needs? Because he likes them. And technical teachers are mathematically clever. They can do the sort of maths that Sean needed. And this was a tactic that we started to use from time to time. Mm-hmm. Instead of sending somebody somewhere 
where for whatever reason it's not going to work, send them somewhere it will work. But make sure that you find uh, another way uh, to skin the numeracy cat while you're at it. <laughs> Certainly does, and it kind of links back to what I said in the in the intro that. I said there that you were a fine example of the empowerment agenda in action and this empowerment agenda that, that's very current right now, that seems to be a great example of it when I ask you about uh, autonomy and, and as, a, as a head teacher. Examples like that are surely what empowerment actually is in the role of a head teacher. Mm. I, would, I would agree completely. And, and you know, as a school, we were data rich. Because we didn't do these things on a whim. We would evaluate to find out the level of success or otherwise, the changes that had to be made, what the nature of the changes should be. I would consistently say to my colleagues, right, okay, I might be liking that idea, but what is the intelligence on this? I would say my pals and the senior, that are senior officers in the police, crack on all the time about intelligence. What we need to know before we actually act, and do we have the intelligence? And if it's, if it's uh, not a whim, but if it's just, even if it's just, if it's as firm as a belief, do we have some kind of uh, background, some sort of research background, almost? Uh, to substantiate making this change and you know it's not that um, we were a place where anything went with HP sauce <laughs> if I can put it uh, I'm sure you understand what yeah. I'm in saying that so it brings me back it brings me back to a question about Scottish education as a whole because You'll have been a head teacher through a lot of changes. You oversaw a lot of changes. You, you then saw a lot of saw things in the independent sector. So, can I ask you, Ian, how has Scottish education changed in your time as a school leader, and has it changed for the better? It's changed for the better because I believe that, by and large, in schools, the the culture is is a lot better. It's a lot more positive in terms of interactions with uh, the young people and in terms of walking into a school and, and uh, what it feels like. That has changed for the better. But in, in terms of real change, I don't think the system has changed all that much. I'm really sad uh, about Curriculum for Excellence um, because I think that, uh, no, I believe that what was said at the outset was absolutely one and nail, but it's lost it in the implementation. And one of the reasons it's lost it is because of the inherent conformity and uniformity in the system. And that still persists, and people are very reluctant to be different because it's not easy to be different and see if you are different. You're out there in a branch or maybe it's a twig that you're actually perched on and it's, it's bobbing around a lot. So that's my first uh, thought in uh, general terms. Uh, 
We still have a system that believes something that's absolutely nonsense. And that is that you can inspect quality into a system. You cannot inspect quality into a system. Now, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s in Japan, when they took their great leaps forward in terms of uh, productivity within their industrial sector, they did it on the basis of TQM, Total Quality Management, which was the whole notion of getting things decided at the appropriate level in the organisation, facilitating and enable and incremental uh, improvements. I worked with a guy as a student, uh, and he's still my friend, Campbell McDermott, and Campbell made pipes out of steel and copper for fitting on ships. And he would get these bits of paper with a few lines on it. And from it, he would make this pipe that went hither and yon. And I would help him with it because he would set up the pipe on this big table and he would heat the pipe at a, at a full point. And then I had to draw on the pipe. I had to pull the pipe uh, uh, to bend it. But when Campbell fit, finished a pipe, he would say, if they can't get that in, they want to chuck it. If they can't get that in, they want to chuck it. So what he was saying was, if they can't fit that in mm -hmm. the ship, it's not because I've made it wrong. Campbell was a quality craftsman. And Campbell knew whether it was right or not within acceptable tolerances. He didn't need somebody to come along and measure it all out against the drawing and tell him whether it was right or not. He knew it was right. And he wouldn't send anything away from his table that wasn't right. And occasionally he would say, Nick, you can throw that in the scrap skip, Ian will make you start again, you know? Um, and at TQM, they said you can't inspect quality in a system. Because if he's going to get told it's wrong, then he'll make it again. The chances are somebody will come around and tell him it's wrong again. So why is it that every organisation that I know of in Scotland that delivers CPD for teachers, delivers courses on getting a good inspection report, and they're always oversubscribed. That's a brilliant question. Because that is it. That's what we've became. That's what we've became. Ian, we've became a profession that simply needs to have a good inspection. Once your school has a good inspection, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, our inspection for me. I mean, I live in a good area. The schools that I live in have good reports. So I bought a house in the area. I work in a poor area and the schools in poor areas tend to get poorer inspection reports, which then continues that cycle. So in, in a sense, we're contributing to the to the cycle. And that's, 
if you know Darren, you got it one. I live in a nice area. My son goes to school. My daughter goes to school. And a nice daughter goes to school in a nice area. Um, my wee and that you saw a minute or two ago goes to a nursery in a nice area. But the trouble is within the system. There are things going on that are, if they're not immoral, they're certainly amoral. When inspectors came to Govan High School, I got every year group, one after the other, in the hall, sat them down and going, and we fill in the questionnaire. And one of the light lines in fourth year says, ah, there's no way my questionnaire will ever get. I said, well, see where you're sitting? Is there a wee sticker on the desk? Aye. What does it say on it? 145. Right. 145 may be picked. I said, but I don't know. I asked one of the women in the office who hasn't been in this room each time to pick a series of numbers, the ones ending in two, five, seven, or whatever, and they're the ones that are going to. I said, so your, yours has a chance of getting in, same as everybody else's. Cameron went in his school to fill in one of these, and he said, there wasn't anybody in the room that had ever had a row for anything. So what you had there was a head teacher selecting the kids who were going to do the questionnaires. Now, immoral or amoral? Cameron said to me, Cameron said to me after the third year prize given, what do you think of the head teacher's report? I said, yeah, I thought it was uh, very good. He spoke very well. He said at the start that somebody told him last year he was too long. I said he was 18 minutes last year because I time these things, sad man I am. <laughs> I said he was 11 minutes this year, so that was brilliant. And he said, what about the bit about congratulating the teachers on the good exam results? I said, well, that's all a bit right, folk. I said, aye. But what about the tutors, Dad? He didn't mention the tutors. He didn't thank them. He said, because if you've got a rotten teacher here, your parents get you a tutor. And your tutor gets you the good exam result. Know that, teacher. And that's invidious, and that's in the system. And there are people who have got, well, no this year, <laughs> but there are people who have got a great cottage industry running tutor. And I used to do it myself. Because when I was a biology teacher and a principal teacher, I taught in one of the less advantaged schools in the area. And... A more advantaged school had a biology department that could have been better. So folk go, ah, funny in way. He'll, uh, he'll come and help me. And I had wains that were that good. I had twin sisters one year. The biology didn't fit in their timetable. So I met them once a week for an hour, and they both passed higher biology without getting taught in the school at all. You know, and you know that is invidious in the system. I had a colleague whose nephew was in the top English class in one of the best in inverted commas schools in Glasgow, and there wasn't a single young person in that class that didn't have a tutor. So that brings me to my next point. When we make changes in Scotland, we change the things that don't matter. We change the structures. We don't change the people. We don't change the people who are delivering the curriculum. We don't change them to make them 
relate better to young people. Now, since I've thrown that one out there, don't get me wrong, the vast, vast, vast majority of teachers in our schools are tip-top, are terrific. 100% agree, but it, it takes me so, back to... Some only, Dan. You're and, what vi- them? and what if your Wayne gets one of them, as mine did? Five A passes and he's hires, three from the teachers in the school, two from tutors. Not every not every child is is fortunate that, but then it comes back to a wicked issue that we have in Scottish education. You know, if you think about teachers, and I mentioned it in a prior podcast, and we talk about it a lot in my context, is this idea of a wicked issue? Yeah. So, so do you put your best teachers with the best kids to guarantee results to get even better results, or do you put your best teachers with the least? I don't know how you say it, the the poorest attaining kids to maximise their attainment and then put your lesser teachers if I could say yes, that I, I with, with, the be- with the better class and then risk their education it's it's a difficult one for teach for head teachers, for deputy head teachers and principal teachers to balance that I mean not every department is blessed with six, seven fantastic teachers they might have four or five and a couple, but then what happened? You then we then have this again self fulfilling prophecy where you just rather than focusing on teacher centered leadership to develop the teaching quality in your school, will give the least the least experienced the poorest attaining teacher the worst classes. We'll give them a broad general class. We'll give them no senior classes, and this cycle of, of them continue. They'll disengage. They'll become disenfranchised, and then it will just get worse and worse and then your better teachers will fly because they've got a great experience because they've got all the good kids. Correct. Now, that is a traditional way of looking at it. My way of looking at it is that you actually target the teachers who are not delivering and you work with them and you train them and you give them targets to meet and you personally, and this is where the inspection thing comes in, you personally look at how they're doing. And if they're not meeting it, it ratchets up to the next level. And if they're not meeting it, it ratchets up, ratchets up to the next level and it becomes a disciplinary matter. And ultimately, that person has to leave the job if they can't cut it because remember what I'm saying is you need to change relationships mostly skill and behaviour management is about relationships and there are tools and techniques that uh, I mean I work part time for um, Pivotal Education I mentioned Paul earlier on we did this stuff way back in Govan and there are things that you can do that vastly improve the learning environment, but I'll tell you something. When we were at Newlands, of course, I recruited the handful of teachers that were there myself. There was no question uh, anybody that was surplus somewhere parachuting in. I recruited them myself, and I recruited them on uh, the basis of what I believed would cut it at Newlands. 
Where there's focus in relationships, remember what I said? Two thirds of the brains coming in were reading age of nine or less, and yet 80% of them are getting at least five national fours. They're all getting at least one national five. Where we're getting it wrong, in my belief, but then who's going to listen to me? Where we're getting it wrong is that if you want to close that attainment gap, you don't work with the young people, you work with the teachers. And you improve the relationships and then it's a learning environment and then you get young people who want to learn. Liam, who said to me, I'm not stupid, I just didn't used to bother. He liked it with us. But the thing was that we had very high expectations of the way of you. So we're not playing uh, pool and table tennis and doing what I liked. But we were nice to them. Nice. But against expectations of that, I say, and I even almost negotiate. Because you could say, we could say to these young people, with that sort of behaviour in a workplace, what would happen? I get my books. So, I, all right, I get it. See, to me, that is the way forward. But see if you're pushing me in that. See if you're pushing me in that. Give the best guys to them as need some most the most challenging classes. See the man I became an assistant head? Well, all thoughts of teaching uh, biology were out the window. Back in these days, it was standard grade science. Everywhere I went, I get standard grade science. One guy said to me, after the exams one year, he says, hey, you're pretty good at this, aren't you? I said, that's one of the reasons why I'm an assistant head. I said, but come into my class anything. Oh, I said, I've been in the prep room listening to what's going on. He said, he said, no, he said, uh, he said, these wins will work for you. But it was a relationships thing. He's dead strict, he never shouts, and he's a great laugh. Dead strict, never shouts, and he's a great laugh. Where we have the challenges, with anything in our schools, it's with folk who are not making the right relationships. And I'm sorry if anybody listening to this is going to take offence, but as a great green-up comedian, Chuck Murray said once, you've taken offence, but I hope you don't come back for the gate as well. I see. It was a clever comedian, Chuck Murray. There was always a lag to people voting. Oh, the, wee, the wee thinking process. No, you're right. But the whole thing is that that's my belief. That is the reality. There are some people that are not in the Campbell McDermott situation. There are some people who are not in the, if they can't get that, in the one to chuck it situation. And we have to work with them. So, to make the changes in the system, change some of the teachers. Kaboom. <laughs> I love I love that one. So we're gonna just to explore a little bit further. I've got two more questions before I get on to what I call my final three, Ian. Um 
I've changed some of the questions that, that I sent you because the conversation has just yeah, flowed, sure. flowed in a different direction, Ian, and I've, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed it, as I've said to you. So then, just before we, we kind of go into kind of what, what you do for work now, could you kind of go a little bit further and what should we what should we be changing or doing better in Scottish education? You spoke about changing the teachers, but how do we do that and what else should we be changing to make Scottish education truly excellent? Because I've, I, I, I believe that in Scotland we have the potential and the capacity to have one of the best education systems in the world, but I don't think we're there yet. So what can we do to change and make it better? I'm actually going to highlight a couple of things that have come through what we've been saying already, but uh, hopefully develop these uh, a little. Uh, The first of these is the one we've just been on. We need to make all of our practitioners more skilled in the techniques of uh, creating a good learning environment because these things work and it's got to be a commitment on the part of the whole school so that we get developments that are consistent so that the young people go from place to place and they know what to to expect. The ideal is if we can work not just with the secondary school, and that's what I've been really talking about, uh, but recently, God, it's been wonderful. I've been working a wee bit with primary schools, and uh, wow, I just love them. But the Noon Grammar School and all of its about 15 associated primary schools um, had a session with me on behalf of uh, Pivotal on behaviour management, developing the positive culture, and their idea is that they're going to develop something across the whole cluster so that the young people grow with this in the primary school and it's the transition into secondary and they meet the same approach in the secondary school so that there are no surprises for them uh, along the way. And it's their belief that by doing this, they are going to make a real difference. And uh, um keep my eye on this one because it's a real positive uh, uh, development. So that's one thing. Now the second thing is we need to look at assessment and I've mentioned this before because this is the 21st century. When you go to your work you don't go into a situation where you're not allowed to talk to anybody or look anything up. You use every tool, whether it's physical human or a resource that you can to solve a problem. Now I'll give you a wee example. I was, when I was at Govan, I was visiting the shipyard in Scotland. the one that makes the, the smart destroyers and frigates and things like that, uh, built part of the, uh, the big uh, aircraft carriers. And I got introduced in the design office to a guy who was a former pupil of Govan High, not in my time, much before my time. But I was fascinated to go there because, as I was saying earlier on, as a student, I worked in the shipyards. And we went into the design offices and the drawing offices. Uh, it was big drawing boards and pencils and rubbers, and the guys had yellow dusters, and they kept everything absolutely spotless in their uh, 
hand-eye coordination was wonderful and the they drew technical things that were in their own way works of precision works of art I went in at this place and I looked and there's no drawing boards of course it's all computer aided design then so I got introduced to this fella and he said oh you wouldn't believe it he said I need to see I need to see a fresh water circulating pump he said look at this and where he was wanting to see the pump was crisscrossed by fuel lines and different other kind of pipes he said so I think this is the best place for this pump. So anyway, that's what we're going to try and get sorted now. If you want to watch for a minute, I said fair enough. So he showed maybe another four designers over. Interestingly enough, one of whom was female that you would never have seen in the old days of the shipyard. So over I came, and he said, "Right, folks, here it is." And he said, "Now, well, you're doing the fuel lines. Look at this." And so I, I could reroute that. So he summed it up and he says, right, so we all know what we need to do and I can get that pump in there. Aye. And off they went. That's how it works. That's how you solve problems. Mm -hmm. Now, to get your qualifications to get into that job, you've got to get in an exam hall and regurgitate stuff you've memorised. What's that all about? That is not the type of learning that we need for the modern day. Did I mention Charles Handy earlier on? I can't remember. Yeah, I did. Charles Handy speak in Manchester in 2007. Now, he was about 82 at the time. And Charles Handy was, he worked in higher education. He was a, a guru for management uh, development and leadership development, that kind of thing. And he got asked this question in the Q&A session at the end. And the question was, at that time, North Korea was a big deal. With everything that's going on in North Korea, the Middle East, global warming, whatever. If we were back here in 10 years' time, what do we need to change in our world? So Charles Handy started off, he was, he was uh, a really charismatic guy. He said, well, for me, the notion of being back here in 10 years' time is quite attractive, so I'll stick with that for, for one, because he would have been 92 by then. And, uh, but anyway, he said, no, he said, we need to stop doing what we're doing to young people in our schools. 2007, Manchester. He said, we need to stop this warehousing of learning. Learning things wrote or parrot fashion to be regurgitated in an exam. They go to the dark recesses to a warehouse somewhere in the mind and it's almost impossible in the future ever to draw that learning out again if you ever had to. He said, no, 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 if we need to do that sort of stuff, get it done in the morning and let's get on to the important stuff in the afternoon. And he was talking about skills development and work experience and that kind of thing. And that brings me to my next point about where I believe that Corrective Excellence lost it. It lost it because we are still assessing on the basis of memorise it and regurgitate it. And I did speak about this earlier on. Now, in Govan High, what we did was we moved towards this skills-based approach which sat alongside learning the content. And in all situations, it looked at the skills that were being developed amongst the young people. And they knew what they were developing. 
and we assessed them on that and they self-evaluated. And we got to the stage where young people, if you asked them what they were good at, they didn't say maths at PE. They would say things like uh, communication or teamwork. And then you could ask them, well, how do you know that? And they would tell you about experiences that they had had in their learning, which had them developing teamwork or communication skills. They knew what they were good at. You stop a wean in a school when you go back to work, a wean in your school, and say, what are you good at? Bet you anything. You get maths or English or maybe FIPA or something like that, which FIPA is actually a better answer because you can then tease out the skills with them that are involved in FIPA. So we focus on this. Now, with a young person who was being exhorted by his English teacher, Jordan Smith was being exhorted by Debbie Lowe's English teacher, great teacher, uh, exhorted towards, at the time, his Intermediate two English exam. And he said to her, yes, Miss Lowe, it's important. The exam's important. He said, the qualifications will get me an interview, but it's the skills that will get me the job. And another young person in the school said, what's the point? of having six standard grades at A passes, at top rate passes, if you're a geek and you go to an interview and you can't talk to anybody. What's the point of that? With young people sitting in Norway, because we did mental, we did all sorts of mental stuff. We had them involved in a water in our culture project. We were about five young people with young people from another communist project, four or five countries in Europe, and it was in for visiting. So they're sitting in Norway, and they're at a hydro scheme, and the manager of the uh, facility has got a, a drawing up a diagram up, and he's explaining how you get the energy changes to ultimately drive the turbines to generate the electricity. And sitting in the middle of this we group of students as one of the members of staff, and one of the students said to not her, but to the girl beside her, look, diagrammatic interpretation. That was one of her skills. And she was sitting there and had pulled that in. Young people need to have skills. As a school at Govan, we asked 80 businesses through the business club that we were a member of, what do you need from us? This was part of the... Remember I was saying the uh, uh, curriculum conferences and all that, part of the evaluation we did. 80 businesses sent its returns. Only two of them mentioned school subjects. And these were both things like admin and finance. They never spoke about qualifications. They were wanting adaptability. They were wanting uh, communication skills. They were wanting uh, perseverance, sticking with it, that kind of thing. So that's where correcting is for excellence is lost it. But see, when we set up our um, skills taxonomy, we did it from the subjects in standard grade and what their syllabuses were saying, because they were all there. When we rewrote the skills at Newlands, we did it from the experiences and outcomes and uh, advice on the building the curriculum documents and in the individual subject because the skills are there. 
It's just nobody ever talks to the young people about the skills they're developing. So consequently, they don't know. And then, if they go to an interview and come up against somebody who is pretty unlikely now, but come up against somebody who has the experience that we provided for young people at Govan High, then I'm afraid it's shooting in for the Govan High folk. I can give you an example of that, and it's from the adult sector. When we were recruiting for Newlands, we were recruiting a deputy principal who would teach something, an English teacher, a maths teacher, a science teacher, and an IT teacher, and a deputy would teach one of these. The deputy, an IT teacher, came for govern. The science teacher came for govern, and the English teacher came for govern. Why is that? Not because I hate hunting them. The whole process was just as you would have advertised, filled in forums, our references, interviews, the whole five yards. But when the govern folk came in interviews, they blew the rest of the folk to the water. But here's an interesting corollary. Govern folk, in my day, going for interviews in other schools, would sometimes struggle. And they would get feedback like, you didn't answer the questions the same as everybody else. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear, the same. Is that the point of standing out? And I actually get that myself one time. Fancied a wee change when I was governed. Went to an interview for he and another authority. So the interview was growing, going great. There was a couple of um, elected members on the panel. And I knew they were in there because they kept asking me supplementary questions. But the guy who was chairing it, one of the education officers shut them down. Said, oh, no, we've not got time for any more supplementary questions. He said, uh, we've got other people to see. It's not just this candidate. And when I phoned in the evening to find out how I got on, that's the feedback I got. You didn't answer the questions like everybody else. Well, of course you didn't. And you're shaking your head. Because I can see you. <laughs> uh, and no wonder you know if we are moving into the 21st century see if you and, and I know this is a bit cliched now but if you went into most classrooms at the start in 1920 what would be going on wouldn't it be much different from what's going on nowadays apart from the odd interactive whiteboard and things like that <laughs> because at best our system is locked in preparation for the industrial revolution and for people working in places like Tom Peters talks about this the Ford car plant Tom Peters says we need a curriculum that makes questions more important than answers
Um, so on to my final three, Ian, a um, couple of questions that I ask every guest in the podcast and, and it's helping me learn, it's helping me know more and it's obviously helping the listeners a great deal and they're interacting with me on the, on the questions that we're getting from the various guests. So the first one, um, Ian, is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your career? Yeah, um, great question that. Great question uh, that um, in the old days you you might have said uh, was it Dostoevsky wrote Crime and Punishment you might have said that in, in the old days because that's the way the schools operated you know but uh, but no seriously <clears throat> I'm going to give you three satellites and then the biggie okay the three satellites are uh, I spoke about Charles Handy. He wrote an autobiographical book called My Life and other, something like My Life and Other More Important Matters. You have a read at that. See when he talks about this warehouse and learning and all that kind of stuff and how uh, he did somewhat a degree in classics and then became a manager in Borneo with uh, Shell Makes BP or ESO or something like that and he's out in the jungle in Borneo as a manager and trained in classics you know what's all that about you know uh, but anyway that's a great book another one uh, was recommended by Tom Peters Dan Dan Pink Daniel Pink is the guy's name A Whole New Mind and Pink talks in that book about the stages that human beings society has gone through from uh, the the sort of Stone Age and beyond where who are hunters, and then farmers, and then industrial revolution, and then uh, the knowledge economy. But he says that we're past that now, we're past knowledge. And he said it's more about uh, skills of empathy and how people get along. That's going to be important in the future. So that was a good one. Another one is Tom Peters, Reimagine. Mm-hmm. He's got the education section and that and uh, that's where he he talks about you know show me the school teacher and I'll show you somebody that's never coloured out with the lines and and their lives and um, he says that uh, he really despairs about what goes on in schools so that's uh, that's one but my final one is a novel called The Cane Mutiny by Herman Woke don't know if you know The Cane Mutiny no I don't know it's also a pretty reasonable film with Humphrey Bogart in it and The Cain Mutiny is a war story it's a love story it's a social commentary but also it's a story about leadership and The Cain Mutiny has a few central characters who all serve in a ship called the USS Cain and the USS Kane is a total mess. And this new skipper comes to the ship and he sees it as a mess and says, right, we're going to start doing this in every way. We're going to sharpen things up. And at first, people are saying, this is great. But then through time, the skipper's got a few wee foibles. They start to round on him. And there's dissension amongst the ranks in terms of the officers. And eventually, one of the officers kind of pulls all the strings 
and the executive officer in a typhoon takes command from the skipper. Now, my point in this is when you read this story, it's it's a crank read. But see, my belief is that Commander Quig is his name. See if Commander Quig had had a decent team around him, and if he himself had been able to build that team, then the mutiny would never have happened. Because intrinsically, Quig had uh, perhaps a wee a psychotic problem, but he wasn't a bad guy. And uh, very often in the wartime situation, when you think about it, leaders were a bit crazy uh, anyway. And you know, an old fellow that was in the command as well, Lord Lovett, and he said that Lovett was a madman. He said, an absolute madman. But Neil would have gone to hell for Lovett, you know. So anyway, that's why the K-Mutiny, and in actual fact, I used the K-Mutiny uh, with staff at Govan and at Newlands, and I would say, read that book, and then I would take them through the book, looking at various parts of it from the leadership uh, context. Mm-hmm. And all the time they would say, ah, you would think this guy, Quake's an absolute rascal, but then by the end of it, you're saying, well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And another uh, great uh, book was written by the guy who was the, the main character, the main officer in Band of Brothers, Dick, I forget his name. Waters. Great book. Winters. Winters. Winters, sorry, yes, Winters. Winters. And if you read his book, not Ambrose's Band of Brothers book, but if you read Dick Winters' book, see uh, the leadership lessons in that, because he was just for the men so so these are the books uh, these are the books for me none of them you'll notice written by educationists but a lot to be learned and to yes that, that, that translate into 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 what we do know beautiful thank oh, you and I, and I read the stuff before and these guys as well you know <laughs> um, my second question in my final three Ian is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher it can be a teacher who's starting out, a teacher that's early career, a teacher that's been teaching for 30 plus years, what one bit of advice would you give them? Build relationships. Good relationships, that is. Very simple, love that. My final question for you, Ian, is something that really fascinates me and I think I'm going to get get some interesting, interesting insights from you, is what do you think most gets in the way of, of great teaching in our schools and classrooms? Fear of making a mistake or getting it wrong in individuals. And that can be young people as well as teachers. The young person won't try an answer in case it's wrong in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. And they feel a bit stupid or they're made to look stupid. The teacher who won't try something because it might not work. I remember uh, going to visit a, a class and it was a probationer teacher in maths and he this this class that you know see the dozen or so in it you couldn't have 
picked a more challenging group from this year group, third year group. You couldn't have picked a more challenging group. And I went in to see him this lesson and uh, spoke to him afterwards and uh, I chanted back for him and he was saying, uh, oh, he said, that was great, you've been in. He said, it was a lot easier than it usually is, you know. And what I said to him was, look, one of the things you were trying to do was lock them down there, get them out of desk. I said, why don't you prepare something that has them up and about, moving around, talking to one another, bloody blah, and I'll come back and have a look at that. So he did this thing that involved having a sum of money to buy a certain amount of stuff, messages, and he related it to algebra, right? And there was places where you could buy the stuff in the room, like going to Screwfix or going to Tesco or whatever. And he did it, and it was out of this world. The Wayans loved it. Algebra with this group, they loved it. They were into the the learning intentions. They got it, success criteria. They got it, and they went out. And I said, he said, that was brilliant, wasn't it? And I said, well, just be brave. Try these things. I said, see when I'm walking along the corridor, and I hear noise coming out of the room. Very often I'll walk in. And I walk in when it's interesting noise. I said, there is noise that indicates to me there's something really good going on in that room because the young people are purposeful and engaged. And you can tell that, well, my experience from uh, the type of noise. So it's that individual fear of making a mistake, getting it wrong. Bob Mackay that I spoke about, the late Bob, he used to say, mistakes are treasures. Mistakes are treasure. That's how we learn. Mistakes are treasure. And I used to stress this when we had people coming to work with us in government. I used to stress all these. We, we did a big uh, induction thing with, uh, with new members of staff. We had a full day induction before they started. And then we had, on and after that, we'd have maybe afternoons or an after school or a single period where we just drip fed. But I used to talk about this mistakes thing. And this lad who had joined us wasn't with us for long. I was walking along the corner, he came up to me and he said, he said, I made a terrible mistake, Ian. But I think I fixed it. He said, so I'll just let you know. I said, no, before you say another word, just stand there and think. If you have fixed this, do you actually need to tell me what you're going to tell me? Do I need to know it? And he laughed. And he turned away and he said, thanks very much. To this day, I don't know what he did. I didn't need to know. He'd made a mistake. And he'd fixed it. And I certainly never got a phone call from a parent or a young person. By the way, and after that, he never felt any need to tell me. And this takes me to Herb Kelleher, who was the, the father, if you like, of airlines, uh, uh, you know, the budget airlines. And he had Southwest Airlines in the States, which was the first really budget airlines, I believe. And somebody asked Kelleher once, how do you know, how do you know everything that's going on in the complex organization that you're in? And Kelleher said, 
Qual é a nossa segunda boa Brilliant, Ian. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity now just to thank you so, so much for giving me so much of your time for the Becoming Educated podcast. It's been a true privilege uh, having the opportunity to chat to you. So thank you so much, Ian. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, for me. As MD that, that knows me will tell you, Darren, if there's one thing you know you can do, it's talk. So. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy.